This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and this is episode 161. Today, I sat down with Jonathan Bonell, the co-founder and co-CEO of Holy Veggie. Holy Veggie makes it easier and more fun to love your veggies and reach your daily quota with veggie-forward meals and appetizers such as buffalo cauliflower wings, sweet and spicy broccoli wings, and mozzarella-style sticks. Inspired by restaurants from around the world, each product is gluten-free, vegan, and non-GMO, and is designed to put the flavors, colors, and textures of vegetables front and center. Jonathan shares his story from growing up in Canada working as a garbage man to working in strategy and experience planning for brands at an agency called Critical Mass to managing marketing and communication for brands before starting his own brand, Holy Veggies, and growing it to over $14 million in revenue in 2022. He talks about how his mother losing her job when he was in college made such a big impact on him and why he wishes he would have started to work with an investment banker a lot sooner. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing today? Excellent. And how about you? Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped for this. I'm excited too. Holy veggie. I mean, what a name. That is a name that I feel like I could say all day. Holy veggie. I can't wait to hear how you came up with that name. And let's start though from the very beginning. I want to hear about your childhood and why you are the way you are. I think you go through that process of self exploration when you start a business because you begin to question all the decisions you make and you're like how is this tied back to my childhood so i'm glad you've given it some thought i always start with that i'm always so curious you know what were we like as kids that kind of made us the fabric of who we are to get us to this point you know so tell us about yourself when you were little what kind of kid were you yeah so i'm dual nationality the uk and canada so born in the uk in london to a british mother my dad was Canadian and they waited until I was old enough and they brought me over as a baby into Canada. Not much money as a family. My dad was kind of a struggling writer. My mother is a social worker and I have an older sister and we really kind of bounced around from kind of like apartment to apartment uh, when I was a kid. And it wasn't until, unfortunately, there were some deaths in the family from some older family that my parents were able to get enough money to be able to buy a house and and then we moved into a nice neighborhood. And that's when I began to have stability in my life. And I was your typical rambunctious kid. I was really into sports. I loved playing soccer. I loved playing hockey. 
but I was always very curious about nature. I used to go to my grandparents' place about three hours north of Toronto, in a small, small area called Perry Sound. And I just spend my time as a kid in nature, walking around. And and that was kind of my first love, which is, you know, understanding this amazing ecosystem around me of birds and insects and plants and everything playing a role in terms of having harmony. And that was the first kind of step into understanding kind of like the the world of sustainability. And I would say, you know, pretty, pretty standard, like, you know, going through high school, but the first, you know, kind of feeling of, you know, wanting to start my own business happened in the first month of university. So one day I came home from one of my classes, I went to my dorm and I went to call my mother and just to see how she's doing. And I called her office and her number wouldn't go through. And so I thought it was weird. And then I got a hold of the reception at the front and they seemed very worried that I had called. And they said, oh, oh, let me pass you through to your mother's. And when she did, my mother's day was bawling. And I discovered at that moment my mother had been fired from her job. I remember just feeling like the world had fallen up underneath me because my mother was the only income earner for the family. And I was working jobs on the side to help pay for university and I was, I was living away from home. And I remember just called her and, and I got a hold of my mother eventually at home and we both cried. And, and I realized at that point that I never wanted to be in a position where someone else could pull out the rug from underneath me. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be me. I'd rather go out that way. And so that was my first feeling of needing control with my destiny. And this, and sorry, just to interrupt, because this was in Canada, and I don't know the rules with letting people go, but I'm sure it's better than America. I mean, every place on the planet is like better than the U.S. It is better in terms of like the compensation that they give you. Or like parachute time of like package. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was decent, but it was an immediate worry because my parents are a lot older. So, you know, when I lost her job, you know, she was in her 60s. And so it's really hard at that age to try to like, go back to work and get it. And so I, I sent her on the phone at the time. I was like, do you want me to leave school? Like, do I need to come back and like get a job and figure out and help, help with the mortgage? Because you can only be so long without an income if you've got a mortgage. Like, it's a big concern for the bank. That was a pretty traumatic time for me. And it brought my mother and I pretty close. I helped her like, quite a bit in terms of dusting off her resume. I used to help do her presentations for her interviews. And it was tough. It was tough seeing her go through that. I swore to myself that I would make sure that if I ever could be successful, I'd take care of her. That really drives me um, in terms of why I kind of work my butt off. Totally. I totally see how that is like a a turning point. And you're like, I want to be in control of my own destiny. And as entrepreneurs, we really are in a lot of ways. But it's also risky too, right? You can build something just because you're an entrepreneur and you build something doesn't mean it's going to be successful. It doesn't mean there's not going to be ups and downs and maybe months that you're not bringing in money, depending on the business, right? It's There's so many variables. I mean, I love that this was like a turning point for you and that you were like, I want to be in control of my destiny. And like I said, entrepreneurship gives you that ability. But I'm sure you've learned in your <laughs> career path of entrepreneurship that it's actually maybe not as secure as... it took. Six years, the business for me to finally make close to the the salary I was making, like, you know, before I started the business. It took a long time. You definitely set yourself back years from an income perspective. 
And with this hope that this is magical, like exit, I think the one thing you've seen too is that the process for exiting is really difficult. You know, industry by industry, it differs, but like it's so dependent on timing, you know, economically, timing in terms of the trends, like did other acquisitions that happened prior to you, were they all failures? So that's that kind of spooked the market. So yeah, I thought I was creating more stability, but I almost didn't. (laughs) Exactly. And so I'm curious, you know, real quick before we kind of continue down your path, I'm going back just a little bit as a kid. Looking back, do you see any other signs of creative problem solving or entrepreneurship when you were really little or taking leadership of things? Yeah. So, you know, when I was old enough to figure out that you needed money to be able to get things, that's when I started getting jobs. So from as early as, you know, I would say grade five, you know, if it snowed before school, I was up early and I was out knocking on people's door and saying, I'll shovel your driveway for $10. So I would do that until I had to leave for school. And then the summertime, I'd mow people's lawns because my parents had no money. So, you know, if I wanted something, I needed to go and earn money to go and get it. And that instilled in me this desire of just always needing to work. So I've worked tons of jobs. I was delivering prescriptions on my bicycle. I was, you know, doing the lawn mowing thing, shoveling. I worked for, I was a dishwasher at a restaurant chain, always doing something, a moving company, always doing something to make money. And it created a good a sense of understanding of value of your time. And I don't like losing that money because you work so hard for it. You're in college and you get this call or you, you talk to your mom, you realize that she just lost her job and you were helping her a little bit, maybe get her feet back on the ground. Did you end up staying in school? Did you go back? What did you end up doing? Well, they had to come up and see me because, you know, they knew I was contemplating on dropping out. So they came up, both the parents came up when they saw me and went for dinner and, and, you know, we had a good chat about it and they said, you know, we'll be okay. We want you to stay in university. You know, we'll figure this thing out as a family. And so I was able to stay and it just kind of gave me also a renewed focus on my school. I'd also learned in that first year of university too, that, you know, there's always someone smarter than you in a room, but I knew I could outwork people. And because I knew like work ethic came down to a mental challenge and how far you're willing to take the pain. And I had this, and I think it maybe came from, you know, obviously playing sports and playing pretty competitively, plus just dealing with the situation I had. I'll keep going. I'll take it. Like I'll keep going and going, going. And so I was able to learn how to outwork people at university. And that was another big kind of takeaway for me as well from that experience. Definitely. I mean, mental game, entrepreneurship is a mental game. Work ethic, like you said, is a mental game. Competitive sports is a mental game. It's so interesting how it all ties together in a lot of ways. Yeah, but you do also, like, here's the point of being efficient with your time. And I, I see a lot of that now over the past couple of years and meet people who are hyper efficient and work from home who just say, like, is there a shortcut you can take to, like, still producing the same quality of output? without the same amount of, of like mental fortitude and input. There's ways to get smarter around Of course. That. Work smart, not hard, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's my be- goal. That is my goal. I am trying to work smart, not hard, all right? That's, that's, that's what I'm <laughs> right I've, I've learned. I've had to come full circle to figure it out. <laughs> so you were basically admitting that you worked really, really hard for a long time and you kind of yeah. realized, wait a minute, there's a smarter way to do this. Yeah, yeah, basically. 
Well, it takes some time, I think, to learn some of the tricks, you know, like the more efficient ways to do things and the tools that exist to help you do that. And, you know, I think it just takes some experience. Yeah, like we're learning this with, with batch working people do and at times of the day that are optimal to work, also optimizing, you know, the amount of screen time on off. There's all these little things you can do to just make yourself more efficient. It's, you know, a lot of diminishing return. If you just keep pounding it, pounding it, pounding it, eventually just your output starts falling. And so you have to reassess the way you approach your problem solving. And prioritize the most important things first. So talk to us about some of the first few jobs that you had at his college. Yeah. So when I first graduated, I had this notion of going back to, to England. So prior to that, the whole college, like every summer, I worked as a garbage man. So it was the... My so how did that job come about? Because you had a lot of other jobs. Why did you choose garbage man during college years? It was a really well-paying job. I've heard. My neighbor at the time was the head of the, the city collections. And basically, you were referred into the program. And I went down there and in the summer... I would have to wake up at quarter to four in the morning at 3.45 a.m. And I would have breakfast and I would walk downstairs and my, I'd go with my neighbor to get a lift. And, it, and the reason why I got there early is because otherwise I have to take the bus and get there for seven. So if I went with him, I could get a ride in. So I'd basically get at work at 4.30 in the morning and I'd read a book and wait for everyone to come in at 6.30. I'd have started. And my job was I'd have to walk up and down a section of downtown with a bag and a broom and just sweep trash. And so I was literally just sweeping trash. And my shift was from Wednesday to Sunday from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. So the first kind of like month that I did of like waking up really early was like all my training. And then I shifted into this like evening shift. It was terrible as a college kid on a Friday night, finishing your shift at 10 p.m., smelling like garbage. And calling all your friends and all of your friends were already going out. I'm like, well, can't go out. And the days I had off were Monday and Tuesday. So I couldn't really do anything with my friends. And then eventually I, I worked my way up in the garbage hierarchy to where I was driving a, a machine that had a huge suction on it. And that was more pleasant because that was consistent work and it was Monday to Friday. And that was a, a shift where it was at 6 a.m. until 3 p.m. I did that. When I finished university, British college, I wanted to put my mind to the test. I was tired of doing all these jobs. Wait, I'm curious with the garbage ladder that you're yeah. you're climbing. <laughs> I'm so curious. Where does the trash man that we all know and see in the truck, where's that on the ladder? So basically the underworld of garbage, like the hierarchy system there is bag and broom is basically the entry level job. So it's bag, broom, and scraping off signs. From there, you move into pushing a machine. From pushing a machine, you move to driving a machine. And then from there, you can move into some of the other aspects of litter operations. So you can be the guy on the back, you could be the guy driving the big truck. And then the creme de la creme is you're in corporate. So you transfer from you know being someone who's cleaning up the trash to driving around in your vehicle, telling people to pick up the trash. That is the hierarchy within the, the garbage operation. I'm curious, maybe I'm not hearing it correctly. And I'm asking because my son, who's two years old, is obsessed with the trash truck. So, you know, if you were driving a trash truck, you would be his hero right now. <laughs> were you or were you not driving the trash truck and doing the whole like, I don't, maybe back then they didn't even have the whole like automated machine. You probably had to like, the people in the back were getting out and getting the garbage can and throwing it in, right? I had a different machine. My machine was, it's imagine driving a giant vacuum. So it's a vacuum on four wheels and has a huge suction thing. And so basically 
you know, in the morning when you're driving by all the bars that people have left and there's all there's bottles and there's cans everywhere and there's litter. I'm the guy at 6 a.m. who's basically sucking up all that stuff into my machine. And then it fills up into a bag, which I pull out and throw on the side and the people in the truck come by and they throw that in the truck. Wow. This must be some like Canadian operation that we're not familiar with here in the States. I don't know. Yeah. I think in New York, they have, they have something similar to it. Yeah. So basically they're, they're called Madvax, uh, these things. And that was my job. The issue though, is that this heat would get really, really hot. And so every time I found like a cardboard box I'd flatten it and I would sit on it. So I think at the end of the summer at his feet, that was consisting of a foot and a half of compressed boxes. And then when it rained, I had to hide for cover because I had no thing over the top of me, no canopy. And so I'd run and I'd like hide under like an awning or I'd, I'd hide by like a donut shop, wait for it to stop raining. And then I have to get back on my machine. And that was tough because I would drive it. And then the machine was tall, so things I'd hit a tree branch and all the water from the tree would come falling down on top of me. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, you are officially the first garbage man we've had on the show. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm very excited about this conversation now. So you did this during college. And then after you graduated, where did you go from there? Or were you like, I'm going to corporate? I'm going to make this trash truck job a corporate situation. Yeah. So... <laughs> I was hell bent on getting a job in corporate because people in the garbage department and even the moving company that I did on the side as well, it always tell me, you know, that, you know, you're going to be back here. You know, you're not going to make it, you know, you're the people I worked with. This is straight up blue collar. This is not, these are people who are, you know, on a Friday, they were racing to get out to go buy beer. Like they were just, you know, and you were in college. You were probably the only one going to college. Yeah. So they would constantly tease me. Tell me, I was like, you know, you're going to be back here. You're going to be working here. You know, you're not, your college is useless. Doesn't that say so much about, and it's kind of sad to hear them say that to you, because imagine what they've been told themselves in their life. Yeah. I realize they're projecting their disappointments on me. A hundred percent. Someone's telling them that and has told them that for a very long time. And now that's how they view the world. And they think that that's what you're in for too. It's so crazy, right? I was like, whatever, right? Like I've dealt with worse worse than this. So I graduated in 2007 and I wanted to go back to England. You know, that was my goal, just get back to England. So literally from my graduation, a couple weeks later, I packed all my bags. I left and I went to England and and I had no idea when I'd be back. I didn't really care. Like I was 22 at the time. I was young and I got to England and I landed at my uncle's place. And he said, how long are you staying here? Are you going to get a job? And I was like, I have no clue. And yet I need work. And so my first job in the UK was I landed working for a promotional marketing company called MASH Marketing. And my job was basically going around to festivals or going around to anywhere where there was experiential staff that were needed. I would execute. So I executed. I had to wear a giant backpack with like smoothies in it and hand out smoothies. One of my jobs for a week was working at Heathrow Airport. And basically, I had to go in around and disturb people waiting at the gates for their flights and try to convince them to sign up for the British Midland Airways Diamond Club. And so it was a bunch of odd jobs, but it was my first exposure also to the CPG industry and the UK. So there's this really cool brand out there called Innocent. And Innocent was doing basically healthy, natural fruits and smoothies in bottles, BPA-free bottles. The brand was phenomenal. I just 
really admired the way they approached their branding. They had vans that would go across the city and they're all covered in AstroTurf with like fake flowers on them. And I thought this was really, really cool. And I thought this, I kind of need to work for this company, but that financial crisis hit. So I was trying to get a job, but you know, nobody was hiring at that time. And so I was trying and trying and trying to realize eventually I couldn't get a job like permanently. I was just doing this, you know, part-time promotional stuff. And so I came back to Canada and I was back at home and I was very depressed because I was having to borrow money from my parents to pay them for rent living at home. <laughs> they kicked me out of the house. And I eventually got a, I was just kind of networking and, and I got an email from one of the people that I knew from university. And I looked at the bottom of her email signature. I used to do this thing, like, where are they emailing me from? And I said, critical mass. I went on a website and I was like, what is this thing? But like, like web experiential agency stuff. I immediately emailed her and I said, are you guys hiring? And she goes, well, you're in luck because my internship is done. I know they're bringing another intern. And so I went there, I interviewed and I got the job and I got a job working for critical mass as kind of an assistant planner. So I was a strategist and my job was basically to write briefs for the creative team and execute creative assignments. It could be anything from, you know, a new front end design. It could be a microsite. And I immediately dove into the world of, you know, understanding you know, planning. I read Truth, Lies, and Advertising, The Art of Account Planning. I was, I was just absorbing it all. And then the financial crisis in the Europe and what's going on started rearing its head, the reverberation in a lot of the clients that Critical Mass had. And an email came out to the whole company saying they were laying off 4% of their global workforce and they couldn't keep any of their interns. And I was devastated. I emailed the head of HR. I said, I'll work for free. I said, I don't care. I was like, I just need, please, like, please keep me. And she said, sorry, but we can't do that. I went to the, the GM. I begged them. No. And then on my last day, my vacation had been paid out. One of the teams that were working on a project where I was just fitting in on their assignment. I wanted to learn what they're doing. Lindy and Lindsay Ellerby pulled me aside and she said, hey, look, we heard it's your last day here. She goes, but I need some help. But all I can offer you is a one-week contract. I said, I'm on it. Yes. I turned the one week into a month, the month into six months, and then in three and a half years there. Yeah, I loved it. You know, it's really interesting. Listen, you showed vulnerability in that moment, right? I think most people would have just been quiet, put their tail between their legs and walked home. You were like, I want this job. I want to work here. Please let me in. You showed them, you showed everyone that you wanted this and it happened for you. And so many people are unwilling to be as vulnerable as you were in that situation to ask for help, essentially. Like you were saying, I want this job. I want to be here. Don't let me go. I want to stay. A lot of people would just be feeling embarrassed to do something like that, to be honest. I think most people would feel embarrassed to do that. Well, when you're garbage man, you lose all <laughs> pride and dignity. Oh, it's hilarious that you say that. Well, you had nothing to lose, I guess, right? You're like, what else am I going to do? Do I have to go home back to mom and dad now? I can't do that. But that's, I think, what creates these moments. You're up against a wall. You have nothing to lose. And you do some wild, crazy shit like that, that most people would be embarrassed or afraid to do. And they're afraid of rejection, maybe. So they're afraid to say that. But you it sounds like you've had a lot of experience in going after what you want, working really hard to figure it out, 
and getting it, building that confidence, that resilience muscle. And here you're you're doing it again. And you were three and a half years at that job. That's amazing. So did they finally get rid of you for good or did you decide to leave? You know, when I decided to leave, I had the chairman called me, the CEO called me, like everyone called me and it's like, what can we do to keep you? I bet. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And everyone wrote me these really nice notes. I realized after three and a half years there that if I wanted to stay in the area of like, you know, experiential design and UI and UX, I needed to pick a path. And those paths were, I was going to be an analytics driven person, or I was going to be a kind of an information architect. So a UI person. And I was way more interested in the world of creativity. And I had discovered this company called Sid Lee, and they're out of Montreal. They're doing these amazing campaigns for Adidas. They had great clients. And I applied for a job posting, and I landed a gig there. I went over to Sid Lee. I left Critical Mass. I felt it was the right decision for me. And I got thrust into a whole new world where I was around creative people. I was exposed to design, branding, packaging assignments you know, campaign work. And I was, again, just kind of figuring it out. People thought I was this like digital person and I'm here, I'm just trying to help you solve problems. And I I loved it. I was there for a couple of years and and I really, really enjoyed it. I love the thrill that I've worked a lot on new business pitches. We have stuff like two days before the client would come in to pitch them would be at the office till three in the morning. I love the creativity around that time where just you had an art director, you had a designer, you had your account person, you had a strategist. You were just putting together your point of view on solving this client's problem in a short period of time and reimagining the way they approach their business. I loved it, but I wanted to leave Toronto. I I wanted to get out and New York was on my mind. I just said, I wanted to go to the the epicenter of advertising. And and at that time, I was working in a client that was called Blue Goose. It was a large, really large wealth management business, had acquired a cattle operation in British Columbia, It acquired a really large organic fish farm in Northern Ontario, and it acquired some kind of areas of a chicken business. And my job, and they were a client of mine at at Sidley and my team, were trying to pull all these assets, the spirit assets together under one roof and one brand. And we're working in the packaging and the CMO at Blue Goose was a former partner at Sidley. He was the former president of Red Bull in Canada. He was someone that I've, I've been missing in my life in terms of a mentorship figure. And he knew I was going to go to New York. And he said to me, he goes, look, I know you want to go to New York, but don't go to New York. He goes, why don't you come work for me? Come client side. Thought to myself, I was like, you know, this company's really cool. They were like farm to fork, vertical integration with cattle, beautiful properties, really cool thing. I was like, team stacked. I went there and I was there for eight months. And then one day, the head, head operational wealth division asked me, David, my business partner, four others to meet them at the corporate office. Not my boss, not my boss's boss, but meet them there. And they let us know that they were going to be doing a bunch of staff reductions. And they fired 75% of the company. And then my boss was gone a week later. And it was like, uh... Uh-oh, run! <laughs> yeah. And I had to figure it out. So I, I all of a sudden, I had to take on the role of sales, which I'd never done in my life. You know, I really liked being in marketing because I didn't have to interface with the client too much. And I got to spend my time just like diving into problems and research. But all of a sudden I was doing sales. And then I was doing product development. And then I was getting involved in operations and finance. 
they were raising third-party capital. I had to do presentations for raising third-party capital. And I got thrown in this whole world of financing and running a business and operators. And And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Sounds like a lot of really great learnings and sounds like almost like a generalist role where you got to put your hands in a bunch of different things. Where were you? What was your moment of like dreaming of holy veggie? Like where'd the idea come from? Do you remember the moment where you had that aha moment of this is the company that I want to start? And it sounds like you have like all of this experience kind of leading up to that moment. So Dave, my business partner of Holy Veggie now, him and I end up sharing an office and we'd bounce these ideas off one another. I've always had this idea of like starting my own company back to my university days with my mother and wanting to control our destiny. And I was like, oh, like I thought Dave, like what if we could like, import a product from the US. And so we, we thought about that and we realized that there's a whole world of distributors and knowing about it. But I went down to Expo West in 2016, in March 2016. And it was me and it was the sales guy for Blue Goose. And then his wife came down as well. And I was walking the floor and and I saw some rumblings of these plant-based products. And I saw like a few things in there that were like, you know, alternative meat, alternative sausage. And on my way back from Expo West, I read this wired cover story on Beyond Meat. At that time, they were extruding proteins and it was, it was you know, still all frozen. It was fundamental. But I thought about it. I came back and, and the next day I went in the office, Dave, and I said, Dave, I said, this is the future. And I said, we right now, work for a company that is personally responsible for destroying our planet. I said, what if we could find a way to do something more positive? What if we could take all this hard work, all this learning that we're doing, Dave, and apply it to something that can make the world a better place? I said, I've seen it. And I, I showed them the photos and I said, let's do it. Let's get involved in this. And so I actually emailed Beyond Me and I said, I'd like to import you into Canada. And they laughed at me. And so I said, all right, like, well, I'm going to create a competitor. You're going to laugh at me. I'm going to create a competitor. And so we went to work and we're like, okay, let's understand, like, let's do our own company. Let's do our own big meat company. And that journey, the first, you know, part of that journey was Dave and I went down to Wegmans and we picked up all of the, the competition, all the products we could find in the grocery store. And I had somehow convinced a chef to work with us. We had no money. We couldn't pay him, but he felt badly enough for me that he said he would help us out. And this was a traditional meat chef. 
So he calls himself the barbecue king. He's got 25 barbecues in his backyard. He's all about just like blow torching everything and like things that. And so Dave and I, we took the morning off of our jobs because we we're still working at that time. So we'd get permission. Hey, can we please have the morning off work? Use part partial day. And so we showed up in our suits with all this fake meat product. And we knocked on the garage door of the chef. And the garage is his office. And it like the door like creaked open. And there he is smoking a joint, bottle of tequila on the table. And all these pictures, memorabilia to him back in the days as like this barbecue person. And I put all the fake meat stuff down and we got to chatting. And he said, he said I'll go fire this up the barbecue. And then he came back in and, and he said, you know, guys, you know, it's really interesting. For all these plant-based products that are on here, why are they all brown? None of them look like vegetables. Where's the color? Where's the vibrancy? Where's the vegetable? And that was our first aha. And we said, oh my God, why are people not making products that look like veggies, that taste like veggies? I was doing some research to understand, well, like, you know, what's going on here? Like, and so I discovered that basically the, the two primary reasons why people don't eat enough vegetables are intimidation and, and perceived inconvenience. And so that's on the journey of creating this company. That's amazing. I love it. So when you say color, I think of actual veggies, you know, the veggie burger that are colors. Yeah. So Dave and I launched that same product in 2017. That's the product so, you launched with was veggie burgers. Yeah. So we launched three burgers. We launched a green burger. So herby garlic patty. We launched a beet burger, a Southwest beet, and we launched a sweet curry carrot. They were vegetarian. They were 90% vegetable. They look like veggies, taste like veggies. And we launched them in Canada with 80 stores and they were in the refrigerated case. And we expanded all across Canada with them. That was our core focus. But when we went down to the US, you know, what we felt was that it was just too competitive of a marketplace. And we decided instead of using our veggie burgers as our hero product into the US market, we decided to focus on frozen. And specifically frozen snacks. I don't think you sell those anymore. So you it sounds like you just shut that down. You guys kind of pivoted completely. Were you called something else or were you still called Holy Veggie at that point? Still called Holy Veggie. And I can send you some examples of what we used to, but we're actually, we're debating on bringing them back. So we're going to run a poll on our social media next week. And we're going to go to our audience because we still get a lot of messages from our original audience from back in the day saying, please bring your veggie burgers back. And what had happened was that, you know, being a vegetarian product, we were always getting this, this hate from people about not being fully vegan. I remember being at an event and our tank got encircled by the vegan society here in Toronto. And they were kind of putting this pressure on me, you know, why do you have eggs in your burgers? You guys are phony. And, and the, the market was exploding. Everything was talking about beyond me to just come public Light Life launched their stuff. He felt, I felt all this pressure. And so I told Dave, I was like, we got to find a way to make the burgers vegan. And, and we switched to a different manufacturing partner. We could never get the product. The vegan version can never get it to where we were happy. And we launched it and it just, you know, it just kind of trailed off. And so we, we pulled it from the market. So what were your hero products? That you launched with here in the U.S.? We launched with our cauliflower wings. What we had noticed was that we were seeing consumer adoption of air fryers in the home. And we also saw that snacking and snacking occasions 
we're growing. It's still up today. So 50% of consumers who shop in the grocery store right now snack more than three times a day. And then you can apply that to the millennials in the Gen Z segment it's even higher. So three times a day, those two segments, Gen Z and millennials, are snacking more than three times per day. And a lot of them now are using snacking to skip meal occasions. And they're using snacking as kind of a core way to stick to a diet or to incorporate vitamins and minerals into their system. And so we knew that, hey, snacking is something that's growing. More people are going into air fryers. And we started seeing stuff in the restaurant industry that was really kind of this perfect merger of the two. So we started seeing kind of restaurant style, like, you know, like battered cauliflower, battered broccoli, stuff that made sense. And so we said, hey, let's go and take these really cool trends that we're seeing in the restaurant industry and let's bring them into retail. So we were the first ones to launch a line of gluten-free panko style cauliflower wings. We launched a buffalo and a ranch. And our first retailer that kind of took us on with those items and kind of made us was Target. So Target was a very first retailer. That's amazing. And so when did you launch these Hero products in the US? What year was that when you launched in Target? So in Q4 2019, so really just before the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, oh my God, things just surged. I bet they surged. I mean, because everybody was home and snacking away, right? And so if you guys kind of technically launched in 2019, what is kind of, I know the, you know things are probably a little crazy around the COVID time, but the revenue story of your growth, the ups and downs, can we kind of talk about you know, 2019, 2020, 2021, and then just last year's growth as well and kind of what that's looked like? So I think a lot of people, we were talking about this earlier, everyone thinks this is, it's like, oh, well, it's just this coasting, continuous, crazy growth year over year, month over month, week over week. It's like this perfect picture of a company. It's just not that way. So I'd love to hear your story. First couple of years, it was hard. We didn't realize when we launched our veggie burgers, which were our first products, it was very seasonal. So, you know, we would do really well in the summer and then things would cool off when we hit the winter, no pun intended. And so we were like, whoa, we didn't understand this because we were new to the food industry. We didn't understand seasonality. Intuitively, we put two and two together once we started selling. And the other thing we didn't understand was this whole idea of distributors loading in on products. So every time we were on sale, distributors would buy our product and they would buy a ton of it. So they would capture them, they'd reap the margin. And then when you're off sale, like they wouldn't be buying us as much. So we're having a really hard time understanding how to forecast our business in the first two years. And once we got a handle for it with our cauliflower wings, when we hit the pandemic, the business just kept doubling. We basically $2.9 million. And then we went in the first pandemic year, we hit 7.2. The second pandemic year, we hit under 14. And so it was with this explosive growth. So when we went into 2022, we were taking our 2021 numbers and we were kind of forecasting a reasonable growth rate. We're like, hey, like we could probably grow another 25 or 30%. And Q1 hit in 2022. And then everything fell off. We were just noticing like all the headlines about inflation. And then all of a sudden you had a one of the most traveled years on record last summer. So no one was home. Seasonality kicked back into things. So our cauliflower wings products that do really well around holiday appetizer season, the fall, as well as Q1, Super Bowl snacking, March Madness. So you had seasonality kicked back into the business. And then you had these weird price increases that were happening all over the place. So 
we were noticing, even with Whole Foods, in, in regions, our prices were different. So we weren't the same price across the board. In some regions, we were our everyday price of $6.99. In other regions, we were $9.49 and $8.29. And so we were, we were just trying to you know, understand like what's going on here. So we had this weird like culmination of events happened in 2022 where you came off of, off of COVID and people were ready to go out again, eat at restaurants and travel. And then you had seasonality kicked in because of the travel. And then all of a sudden inflation is raging. So people are saying, well, appetizers and stuff aren't really like a core or snacks or core needs for us. We're just going to have the core proteins that we need. And then you're comping to your prior year numbers. So your business looks weird because you're comparing basically a moderate year to a hyper growth year. And so we barely grew last year. I think we're up like 7%. And uh, I would say we're probably lucky with that growth because we've been chatting with other friends in Frozen and it's it's been a tough 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of fundraising, what does that look like? I mean, especially if you haven't had the kind of growth that you're hoping for, I'm sure that affected fundraising, especially just because the environment for fundraising, the market has been so crazy. I mean, that alone makes it really, really tough. I know a lot of CPG brands have been struggling to raise. It's not like it used to be right now. You know, we were talking before we hopped on about investment banking and how you hired an investment banker. And we haven't really talked about that on the show. So I'd love to hear when you think it makes sense to start talking to an investment bank about helping you uh, fundraise for your business? Prior to bringing on an investment bank, my view was when you're ready to do a really big raise. So if you're trying to go for $10 million plus, you bring them in because there's usually a minimum fee associated with these guys. And it can be anywhere from $750,000 to a million and a half dollars. So if that's cutting off of a round, you got to make sure it's a pretty big size check. And on top of that, that's just the minimum fee. And there are all these other things. But I really wish it was possible for founders to almost go through a mock investment banking process earlier in your journey, because it really pokes holes at all aspects of your business. And it often questions long-held assumptions. So if you have an assumption, so say you're year two in your business and you have an assumption that your exit horizon is in five years and it's to, let's call it Mondelez, Kraft and Pepsi or something. You're better to understand earlier in your journey, whether that's one, even feasible and two, the metrics your business needs to support that. Because if you wait and we discovered this, which if you wait until year five or year six to do it, and all of a sudden you discover that they want you know, 10, 15, 20% more in product margin. They want your burn to be way lower than it actually is. They maybe don't want you in certain retailers. If you learn that too late in your process, it is like moving a mountain to try to get your business on that track. So I think if we could find a way, and I think there's stuff out there, like I know Mondelez with Snack Futures, Target's got their accelerator program. There's a few things out there to expose food and beverage founders to almost the same questions investment bankers would ask. I just wish I could have done this process earlier. Like it's not, it's not like it makes you feel good sometimes inside. It's cold. Right. There's no warm and fuzzy feelings here, but 
at least it can help prepare you if you have the conversation earlier. And that's really excellent advice we haven't had on the show before, which is you want to get acquired. Of course you do. We all do, right? Like that's the goal of, you know, you build something. Why wouldn't you want to try to sell it for quite a premium? You know, everyone wants to cash out on their hard work. But to do that, there's a lot of requirements, right? And so that's very insightful to share that, that, you know, have these conversations with investment bankers early so you can start planning for that. Yep. Big time. And, and and also too, like not every business gets sold. Exactly. Most don't. Most don't. Most actually fail and the rest don't get sold. And then there's the tiny little bit amount, you know, whatever top percentage that actually uh, get realized exits. Yeah. But that becomes the crown jewel that is kind of held up for everyone to aim for. Everyone like is, everyone says the same thing. You know, oh, start my business. I'm going to exit in three to five years. Well, I said the same thing when we first started, right? But what I've also realized too is that be prepared to be with this thing for 25 years because maybe it's something that nobody ever wants to buy. And that's not a bad thing. Maybe no, maybe you just build your own empire. You know, you own it forever. It becomes like a legacy company. You have a bunch of different brands under your umbrella or whatever. You know, there's a ton of ways to expand. Pass it off to your children who don't want the business, basically. Yeah, I've like heard second were... generation and third generation owners actually aren't that great. Yeah. Well, mom, dad, you work too hard. I don't want your life. Here you go, son. Don't fuck it up. Yeah, yeah. I'll you garbage man. Yeah, like it's just a reality. And I'm seeing it right now. I'm seeing a lot of founders right now. I'm seeing on LinkedIn posting stuff about leaving their company, shutting it down, the board asking them to, to step aside. And if you just think like how hard people work, this is not a job that is like you sit down with your guidance counselor in grade five and you're like, I want to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> Pick a brutal career pathway and have basically entrepreneurship. Which job will give me the most gray hair? Oh, entrepreneurship? Done. I'll take it. Yeah. It's just, there's just so many other jobs that could be taken. You know, it's like this thing, right, where I feel like you probably don't have any regrets in going down this path because the learning that you, at least in my own experience, the learning curve is so great and amazing and it really pushes all of your limits and your boundaries and your comfort zones. And one of the reasons I love building businesses, but it's also very painful (laughs) because those learning curves are sharp sometimes. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that, you know, they want to be in your seat? They want to have a $14 million business one day. Maybe they're on track, you know, to potentially get there. What advice do you have for those that are tuning in? You know, I think the one thing I've learned very quickly is there's a couple of things. Product market fit is so important for a business. So you can burn a lot of time, a lot of energy on the wrong product. To only discover that too late in your journey. So actually spending the time up front to really, you know, rapidly test your concept and get feedback and, and run an MVP on it and before you go and start scaling. Because once you start scaling, it's like it's really hard to kind of come back from that because you're already hitting, you know, critical mass with your retailers, your distributors, and it's like you're already there, you're already pop committed. And to try to ship at that point is tough. The other thing too is that. You know, I think you need to find a way to like just reassess the business from an outsider's perspective, I would say every six months, because one of the problems I've had is that because I'm so strong headed with stuff, I just give myself a goal and I just say, I don't care about the noise. I'm just going for this because I feel like there's so much instability in your life as an entrepreneur 
you're just like, I don't care. I'm just going and going and going and going. But it's really healthy to have someone pull you out of it and just say like, hey, like, let's like kind of reassess like where this thing is. Like, where is it going? Where's your business? How's your personal life? That's another massive one as well. Because I think also too, like I've destroyed like probably four relationships I've had in the past six years because I've just been so focused on the business. I've just... Like personal relationships? Like yeah. Friends? Partners. I've just you know, the business ends up taking over your, your life. And if you don't find a way to create a bit of balance, like it's okay to like not, you know, work on a Saturday. So Dave and I were just talking about this. You feel this perpetual guilt if you're not like, you know, clearing out your inbox, if you're not thinking about your business all the time and it, it makes you go crazy. I think Elon Musk has got some cool innovations, but I don't want to be Elon Musk. I don't want to sleep in corporate boardroom and not have a relationship with my kids and no i want to be able to balance i want to be able to have a family i want to be able to see my friends you know i shouldn't have to just think i can put my whole personal life on pause just because of business because again if your business isn't sold in those five years like what you're gonna spend 25 years well and that's where i think we tie it back to working as smart as you can versus as hard as you can right and choosing how you spend your time and prioritizing those things and trying to delegate as much as you can, the rest, right? So you're focused on all the things that you should be doing, just you as the you know, co-CEO and co-founder of your business. It's hard to do that bootstrapped or whatever else. Obviously, every company has their limited resources, but definitely finding balance. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up with how it's you know, damaged some of your personal relationships. I certainly had experienced that with my first startup. And that's something that I learned, you know, the hard way as well Is you lose a couple friends or like you said, partners, and that's really, really tough to go through. And it's a good learning to have. And one of the things also I learned was how to separate the company from my own identity, right? My own self-identity. And that's really hard because you're always saying, hi, my name is, I'm the founder of X. This is what, I, you know, it's kind of becomes this thing of who you are. And it's like ingrained in you. And it's hard to separate it and say, no, this is me. And this is a company and referring to it as the company, like over and over. I almost wonder if it's like a communication thing that helps create that boundary. But I think there's just healthier ways for entrepreneurs to associate themselves as a personal you know, person, human versus the company. Very different things. You are not your company is basically the point. You are not your company. You are more than your company. And that that's really important. I think also today as well, because a lot of founders are keeping their whole identity around their company. Sometimes it can be helpful, but you have to find a way to also like have the you time, have the non-business side of you around. And because I also say this too, which is like, if you, if you leave your company, you can feel lost. Like if that was your identity and you leave it. And I see this all the time with like, you know, former founders where they exit their business, but they realize that their whole identity and network was tied to the industry they were in, the friends they had. And then all of a sudden they put themselves back in it. They don't know what life looks like outside of that. And so it's like this cycle of like constantly being tied to it. I don't want that. Yeah. I mean, I think there needs to be a break. My company sold to Grin in 2019. And so I went through that process of kind of like, oh, I am not the founder and CEO anymore. <laughs> this is a very unique situation. <laughs> there was quite a few months of transitioning for me personally into this new role at this company. Um 
And it's it's not easy, but I certainly wasn't ready to just dive into something else. I was actually quite relieved to not have to be, you know, head of everything, right? Like I got to focus actually on some of the things I loved, which were partnerships and sales and, you know, those relationships versus managing my tech team and <laughs> like the the other things that I didn't really enjoy as much. So pros and cons, but definitely I think a break is healthy. Because also you need to take time to figure out what you want to do next. There's a lot of commitment in what you want to do next. So I took, you know, quite a few years, I think, to figure out what I wanted to do because you don't want to jump back in and commit to, you know, another decade of pain. So anyways, let's hear what else is next for Holy Veggie. What do you guys have coming out? And how did you come up with the name Holy Veggie? Oh, yeah. And then we can wrap it up. Me leveraging my ex-advertising contacts, I, I hired someone where she was a writer. And so Dave and I would hop on a call with her and just like blab, just like just dumping everything on her. And then she'd come back with a laundry list of names. And we did this over the course of five or six weeks. And we almost went with other names. Like we had a name that's called Garden Gangsters. That was going to be one of our names. Gaia's Kitchen was another one of the names we looked at. And, and we saw... You know, there was two things on two different names that were on a sheet, and we had something celery, like something celery, and there was holy something else, and and we're like, wait a minute, we're like both whole like holy veggie, but not not blessed, not like a sainted holy veggie, but like W H O, and we're like, well, not like whole, like let's have a play on this. So holy veggie became our play on the words, and it just stuck. It's been great. Like we we went through a rebrand. In Q4 2021. So we hired an agency that's kind of, you know, actually walk us through a proper process because up until that point, the, the brand had been created through, you know, just constantly iterating different design approaches. And so we had we kind of had a Frankenstein look on the shelf. So we brought them on in, we briefed them, we launched our new look and feel. I mean, we were bold. So we we took the the photo off the packaging, we went with just our name, bold colors. And then we we hired an agency out of LA called Partyland to do a campaign. And so we launched a campaign last year as kind of a test. We're going to roll it out more this year. And it's called Ha Ha Ha, You Just Ate Vegetables. And the whole thing is basically taking a, a spoof off of tricking your kids into eating vegetables. I'll send that to you afterwards. And so we're going to be rolling that out. So the big focus for the remainder of this year is getting our campaign out the door we're launching with Kroger as well. So that's going to be part of it. So a big launch with them, which would be great. I think I can say that. We don't have the official business. I think I've yet. seen a few of these videos that you're talking about, and they're really hilarious. They're hilarious. You guys did such a great job with them. And yeah, send me some more because uh, they're hilarious. I mean, the great job on that campaign. How has it been performing? The sad side of it is like we launched the asset. But we don't have enough. We, we didn't raise capital, which we wanted to, to go and support the media spend. So right now we're just kind of trickling the campaign in, but where we spend, it's been very effective because it's, it's disruptive, creative. It kind of, it's not something that you'd expect from a food brand. And so it's performed really, really well. And, and actually the agency behind it just got two Clio awards for it, I believe, which was fantastic. And the goal basically is to, to put more capital against the media and, and to spend it in the key markets to support our retailers, such as like Wegmans and Whole Foods and Sprouts and Target. And then um, we're going to take it easy on new product launches this year. So we just launched one with Target, which is our truffle mozzarella stick, our dairy-free truffle mozzarella stick. But we're going to kind of just 
you know, stay focused on our current accounts, manage the business, and really look at 2024 as a transformative year for us, both with our people, our products, and how we want to approach scaling our business. Because it's a tough market out there right now. And we just want to kind of lay low and just put our put our nose to the ground. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, and you said you're in Wegmans. Is that true? You're right. Exactly. Yeah. All right, mom. Mom, if you're listening, my mom's a, a cashier at Wegmans. So Heck yeah. mom, go get some holy veggie. That's right. <laughs> Bring it That's home. Right. <laughs> no, I'm uh she's in Delaware, so uh I won't be able to have it with her, but she's working at Wegmans, so maybe she'll pick some up and try it out. She'll look for you guys on the shelves. Thank oh, you thank so you. much, Jonathan, for joining me on the show and sharing your awesome story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.